This is episode 306 of That Shakespeare Life. Find special behind-the-scenes content of the making of That Shakespeare Life, along with insider Shakespeare history extras, available right now on our Patreon page. Sign up today at patreon.com slash thatshakespearelife, and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Helen Hackett, author of Women and Romance Fiction in the English Renaissance and of The Elizabethan Mind. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend, Cassidy Cash. I can see how that fits because my reading of the play as a whole is not that anybody within the love triangle is some way in the wrong, that there's this almost fated element to it, that Catherine is this idealised queen. And of course, that, that does then chime in with James's desire to create and maintain a peace with Spain. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. The life of Henry VIII was recent history for Shakespeare, and stereotypes that we associate with Henry VIII today, like chowing down on a turkey leg, for example, weren't in existence for Shakespeare's lifetime. Shakespeare helps us understand the early 17th century opinion of Henry VIII tremendously when he produces his play all about King Henry and his famous cast of characters, including Anne Boleyn and Cardinal Wolsey. Shakespeare's version of Henry VIII's life is called All is True by contemporary accounts of the play, being given the title Henry VIII for the publication of the first folio in 1623. Ironically, it was during a performance of All is True that a cannon fire being used as special effects burned down the Globe Theater in 1613. Here today to help us understand what the stereotypes were for Shakespeare, what the politics and propaganda were that are appearing in the play when he was writing All is True, and to share the real story of the actual Henry VIII as he would have been known during the life of William Shakespeare is our guest and historian, Kat Marchant. Kat Marchant earned her PhD in early modern literature and culture from the University of Sussex in 2015. She's the creator of the YouTube channel Reading the Past. Every week she researches, writes, films, edits, and uploads, and promotes historical education content to the channel. The channel explores, among other things, biographies, particularly relating to women's history, significant moments in our past, and material and textual history. Reading the Past has 115,000 subscribers, 11.1 million total views, and 2.6 million hours of watch time. She has worked as an educator and historical interpreter, as well as an expert contributor on multiple history documentaries for the BBC and Channel 4. Learn more about Kat and find links to her YouTube episodes in the show notes for today's show. Hello, Kat. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life. Hello. It seems intentional that Shakespeare's play about Henry VIII was not performed until after Elizabeth I had died. She died, of course, in 1603. Was it safer politically to perform this play after Elizabeth was not on the throne? I think there is certainly an element to that. It's not really the done thing to stage a living monarch. 
because that might risk injury to the majesty of that monarch. There is a criminal offence that's known as lays or laissez majesté. And so there would be a big risk in, in staging Elizabeth. And of course, although we don't actually have her speaking lines, we do have the body of the infant Elizabeth coming out onto the stage. And I think even if a doll was used, or perhaps even more so if a doll was used, that could have been quite complicated, that you might have Elizabeth watching herself. And I do, on top of that, think that this christening, it's interesting that it's its one of the most clearly set down stagings of a religious and arguably royal rite that, to my knowledge, we see in the entirety of Shakespeare's canon. I think that's really fascinating that there is he's clearly making a decision to stage this, and it's definitely of its time in a Jacobean context, as Shakespeare is now a king's man, no longer a chamberlain's man. Shakespeare usually does have his finger on the pulse of contemporary interest with the subjects he writes about, which makes me wonder if Henry VIII was something of a pop culture icon for Jacobean England. What was the opinion about Henry VIII and his story with Anne Boleyn culturally for the people that would have been watching this play? What did they think about this? Uh, For me, I think we need to look most clearly at what is James interested in. And James is clearly fascinated by genealogy. That's the reason why in the Scottish play, we have that Banquo play out. James has Banquo in his genealogical tree. He has it all printed out. I do believe that when we're seeing Henry VIII or All is True as a Jacobean play, that's actually part of that canon. It's part of the story of what puts James on the throne. And so in some ways, the purpose of it and why it becomes this cult piece or a story to tell is because this is about legitimising James's place on the throne. It's about feeding into his own desire to be positioned as legitimate and royal and coming from royal descent. In terms of the Anne and Henry story in the Jacobean period, how that's read and received probably reflects most clearly on what the person receiving it thinks of Elizabeth, her right to rule, her church. I I want to take Nicholas Sander as an example. He's the one that talks about Anne having that projecting tooth, sallow skin, a wen on her neck, a sick finger. He essentially gives her the majority of the blame for the schism in the church. If you think that Elizabeth and her church are problematic, you're going to root back to her mother and she's going to become this person who bewitches Henry, who is deformed and disfigured. What I think is important is as well that Anne had been made into a feature of her daughter's coronation pageant. So from the start of Elizabeth's reign, this quiet rehabilitation of Anne has been taking place. Evidently, people are painting Anne Boleyn because that's where the portraits come from. They came, they come from the latter 16th century. So they're made in her daughter's reign. So unlike what Elizabeth's older sister Mary does, where it's this very loud, my parents were married, the religion of my mother is the correct religion, Elizabeth does it in a more neutral way and potentially in a more uncomplicated and lasting way that I think continues into the reign of James. 
One of the things that I love about Shakespeare's Henry VIII is the plot surrounding Henry and Catherine. Shakespeare leaves the audience with the impression that there was love between them, and in the end, certainly mutual respect. But I wonder if that was accurate in terms of historical record about their relationship. Would Shakespeare's portrayal of this narrative have offended those loyal to Elizabeth I since her mother was Anne Boleyn, who replaced Catherine? So, obviously, Henry and Catherine are married for a really long time. It's nearly 24 years. And from the outside, most of those years appear to be happy. Henry likes to present himself as Catherine's Sir Loyal Heart. He clearly trusted her. He leaves her as regent while he goes off to try and fight the French. My rebuttal question is, does Henry love her for her? Or does he love the idea of her? this foil for his chivalric gameplay, a diplomatic ace in the hole, you know, this daughter of Spain. Is it the fact that she's a potential, although ultimately not, font for sons? Is what early modern royals or indeed early modern people understand as a love match something that we would even recognise today? So in terms of a being in love with or a loving marriage, I don't necessarily know if we even have a concept of how they would have understood it. Is there affection and respect? Yes. But then equally, if we then go on to consider Henry's capacity to be unspeakably cruel to her and his other friends and wives, that he has this willingness to discard and destroy people who he was once intimately close to, then we are within our rights to question whether he's capable of that emotion at all. In terms of what the record shows, he's a happy, loving husband. He has, you know, a few affairs, but that's he's a man of his time. As we blow the whole thing out, I, I do wonder what his capacity for genuine affection actually is. In terms of the presentation of Catherine as this beloved queen in the world of the play, I can see how that fits because my reading of the play as a whole is not that anybody within the love triangle is some way in the wrong, that there's this almost fated element to it, that Catherine is this idealised queen and, of course, that, that does then chime in with James's desire to create and maintain a peace with Spain. So staging this Spanish queen as somebody who is respected and loved chimes with that. It also chimes with his people who have heard stories of her charity and of her faith and all of that. But equally, I don't think that it presents Anne Boleyn as the problem. And of course, she can't be. Because the way I read the play is that all of these things have to happen because that's how we get to James. They're all fine, and it's fate playing out as it was supposed to, so that James would be possible for England. So you think that Anne Boleyn is portrayed positively in this play. I would love to hear more about those thoughts, because I was going to suggest that she was not portrayed very favorably in the play. And I was curious about what the majority opinion of her was for the Jack Bean audience that was watching this, because you do have to kind of take sides. She's either, you know, the villain that destroyed a good thing that was going, or, you know, she's the, the heroine that is the reason we had the Elizabethan era at all. And you do kind of have to pick 
a lane there to to be in. And I wonder which one was there for Shakespeare's lifetime or was Shakespeare playing the political card in his portrayal of her just like he did with Catherine? I mean, those are all incredible questions. And ultimately, when it comes to the portrayal of Anne Boleyn and I think indeed Catherine and maybe Henry, what it ultimately comes down to is a director's choice and a performer's choice. I think that Anne Boleyn is, I see almost echoes of Desdemona in Anne Boleyn, particularly when we think about her in conversation with the old lady, her maid, and she's having these discussions about how she wouldn't want to be queen. And if you take it on face value, and if you stage that as face value, as people often do with Desdemona, then we've kind of got this almost premonition of this sacrificial lamb in the way that Desdemona is. I can certainly see how, as a performer, you'd rather play Catherine. I think she's a better written part. But I I certainly don't see that Anne is being positioned unequivocally as a schemer. She seems utterly surprised that she's been made Marchioness of Pembroke. She discusses her sympathy for Catherine, this poor woman, this great queen. It's all very within the appropriate language for a servant speaking about her mistress. But when you said that you were going to ask me that, I could I could also see, I thought to myself, well, in what way is Anne Boleyn not portrayed favourably? And I thought to myself, well, it depends if you read that as the long con, in which case, if you play that as deceptive, if you play her as speaking out of both sides of her mouth, then all of a all of a sudden, she becomes deeply unpleasant. <laughs> but I suppose I just read her as this is this is face value. This is how it would be staged, right? And and when that makes sense, that she would be portrayed as a tragic figure, but not someone who was as I think surprised as a she kind of fell into this, and she didn't. She was in love with who she was in love with, and she didn't see. The tragedy coming. Uh, uh, the Desdemona comparison is is fair, I think. So I'll, I'll give her that pass. I think in the play, you can definitely see her as I would go with tragic figure. That's that's the phrase. Yeah, Cardinal Wolsey is portrayed as definitely a villain in Shakespeare's play. Yeah. Now, was he considered a villain in real life as these events were unfolding? Again, depends on who you speak to. Okay. Wolsey's definitely made enemies at the time of this going on and he's and he's made enemies before the great matter he has the added problem in the jacobean period of being a roman catholic but also being somebody who can very very clearly flag up as evidence of the corruption of the church he's doing the simony he's got pluralism he's got all of these roles he's got all of these this wealth and these riches there's no vow of poverty being exercised here nor is his vow of chastity so for all of the people who are reforming and always almost going towards the bounds of puritan cardinal wolsey is just the perfect indication of the corrupt churchman and the bad counselor but there are also shades of that from Bef- long before his fall, Cardinal Wolsey, he serves Henry VII. When Henry VIII comes to the throne, his rise is just stratospheric. Around him, though, there are lots of complaints about his low birth. And if we think about that image of the great chain of being, Wolsey has broken the system. This 
Butcher's boy from Ipswich is now the king's right-hand man, when really that should be a role that's played by somebody of incredibly high birth. For example, a Duke of Buckingham, shall we say. Hmm. He then is involved in things like the expulsion of the minions in 1519 and then the Eltham Ordinances in 1526, both of which are about removing the sons of the nobility from proximity to the king, about controlling who can be around the king. And if you imagine that you are either one of those sons or indeed one of their parents who have spent the exorbitant amount of money that it's going to cost to make that young noble fit for court, fit for government, fit to advise the king, the horse riding, the jousting lessons, the suits of armour, the clothing, the languages, you know, you name it. And then you turn up and this butcher's boy from Ipswich is going, actually, no, you go home and you go home and you go home. You are not going to be best pleased. He gets the blame for, in some circles, Buckingham's execution. So there is this long-running enmity, we're told, with Buckingham. There is some story about how Buckingham is holding the bowl to wash Henry's hands. And Wolsey decides that his fingers are a little bit sticky. So he then uses this water and has basically Buckingham serve him. This is the narrative. Buckingham takes umbrage at this. I would think. (laughs) Yeah. And so the story goes that he then spills the dirty water of the hand washing onto Wolsey's shoes. Years later, Wolsey is questioning Buckingham's disaffected servants He's fishing around to create a tapestry of treason that he then uses to bring before Henry to have Buckingham executed in 1521. So the story of Wolsey's enemies go. Certainly there's evidence that Catherine blames Wolsey for Henry seeking the annulment. And equally that Anne blames Wolsey for failing the king. That there is, she writes letters essentially saying, I believe you're scheming against me. I believe this is your true purpose. You have disappointed the king and I. I now know where I can place my trust. Basically, it's not in you. So by the time of his fall, everybody's blaming Wolsey. And part of me thinks that that's the point of Wolsey for Henry. And historians... Some historians give in to this notion that Henry is led by the nose by Wolsey and then Cromwell and then you name whoever. The value of a bad counsellor for a king is incomparable because no one's blaming Henry for the (laughs) annulment or for the execution of the wives or his friends, you know, the leading peers of the realm. It's much easier to blame this butcher's boy from Ipswich, this blacksmith's boy, it's much, much easier because otherwise Henry starts to look very quickly like a tyrant. So whether he was the villain or not, he certainly gets to be the scapegoat for the king in any way. Oh, for sure. Now, some fun moments from the play, Henry VIII, was at a banquet thrown by Wolsey. The king and his attendants enter in disguise as maskers, and the king dances with Anne Boleyn. Do we know if Henry VIII actually did dress up in disguise for events, and is that how he actually met Anne Boleyn, was at in real life? 
we we do know that Henry does love to disguise himself, to dress up. He does it in masks, but also seemingly to kind of play around at court. He frequently takes on characters from myth and legend, but also allegorical presentations or personifications of virtue. We have an account from near the start of his reign in 1510. He and his friends dress up as Robin Hood and go and surprise Catherine and her ladies. One assumes that Catherine knows this is happening and she knows to pretend not to recognise her husband, but to ultimately be overjoyed and applaud him. I mean, no one's not going to know it's Henry. He's well over six foot. He's red haired. And he's the he's a big, broad bloke. He's the king of England. And you recognise your husband, e- even if he's doing the uh, Batman and Robin thing of a, of a kind of mask over the eyes. You know who it is. Of course, in 1540, that disguising goes a lot less well <laughs> because he dresses up to surprise Anne of Cleves, who has not been briefed on this play acting that Henry likes to do. Uh, Henry has comes to the conclusion that true lovers will always know each other. So even if he walks in dressed like a tramp, then Anne is still going to recognise him as the true king, despite the separating sore, stinking his leg up and the fact that he's eaten half of Surrey. She's going to recognise him as her true love. That doesn't happen. So, and some, some historians do position that disappointment, that embarrassment, that failure to play along as one of the things that really turns Henry off of Anne. In terms of the meeting of Anne Boleyn and Henry, we know that Henry does take part in court entertainments like the Mask of Chateau Vert, which takes place at Shrovetide 1522 at York Place, which is Cardinal Wolsey's palace. And we know that Anne plays a part in that. There is has been recently some debate about which part she plays. It was always established that she plays Perseverance, but more recently that has been interrogated and questioned, and we aren't quite so sure if that is the way that it fell out. We also see in fiction that this moment is positioned as being this couple's first meeting, that he suddenly struck with this dart of love for her in 1522. We don't know if that's when he first meets her. 1522 is when she turns up at the English court, but she potentially had been with the French court in 1520 when they went to the Field of the Cloth of Gold. So it's possible that they would have shared space in 1520. What is for certain is that the majority of scholars do date Henry's interest in Anne as something that begins quite a bit after 1522, possibly around the time of another Shrovetide event, a joust that happens in 1526. At this time, Henry is positioning himself as this ardent suitor. He's got this sort of heart emblazoned upon him and this motto reading, declare I dare not in French. And If it's that one of 1526, that certainly chimes with the letter he writes in 1527, where he talks about being struck with the dart of love for a year. So perhaps not Chateau Vert, but maybe another dressed up joust. In another fun part of Shakespeare's play is that when we see a young future Queen Elizabeth, you mentioned this earlier where the baby does appear on stage and she's born and baptized in this play. Tell us about how this tracks with real history. Was Elizabeth's real life godfather 
Cranmer who baptizes her in the play? Were those historical facts or was Shakespeare wrapping up the play quickly and kind of smashing things together there? So Elizabeth is baptized by the Bishop of London, who's a man called John Stokesley. Cranmer is there. He does stand as her godfather and he then confirms her in the faith. I don't think there's any evidence that he gives that prognosticating speech about her importance to the future of England in that very specific way that we see in the play. But that may be because Shakespeare does generally fiddle with the timeline as a whole. So if we if we kind of just run quickly through the play, we've got Act One where the court's just returned from the Field of Cloth of Gold, so that's 1520. We see Buckingham and Wolsey falling out. We have Buckingham arrested. That's April 1521. Then we've got Catherine pleading for wool traders and pleading on Buckingham's behalf. We then quickly go to that mask at York Place. That's 1522. But Wolsey describes Anne as Viscount Rochford's daughter. He isn't doesn't have that title until the 18th of June, 1525. Then we go to Act Two. We've got the Duke of Buckingham executed. That's 1521. Then we hop to Cardinal Campius arriving. That's 1528. Then we have Anne learning that she's Marchioness of Pembroke. That's 1532. Back to the Blackfriars speech. That's June 1529. Then we've got Henry marrying Anne in secret. Wolsey falling from favour. We are 1529 for that. Anne crowned, 1533. Catherine dying, 1536. Wolsey dying, that's back to 1530. Uh, And then we've got Anne in labour, September 1533. Then, weirdly, we've got the attempt to arrest Cranmer, where he shows the king's ring. That doesn't happen till 1543. So the timeline in general is jumbled, but the christening is certainly condensed, but some of the bits are true. (laughs) So he's basic. We can use that line they use in in films a lot, loosely based on real events. These these happened, just not necessarily in this order. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, I know we would love to explore more about the real history of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, as well as the history of the play Henry VIII. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to explore this topic further? Fabulous. I am a big fan of primary sources. So I really recommend the state papers online. Some of them are behind a paywall, but if you go to your library or archive, they should have access. But there are lots of them that are accessible and they have been transcribed and you can see what people are talking about by date. I also recommend the sources that Shakespeare uses, which are, in this case, Edward Hall's Chronicle and Raphael Hollinshed's Chronicle, both of which are available in PDF and I believe for free online to check out. Those are excellent sources for sure. And yes, both of those chronicles we've talked about several times on our show, so we will link them in the show notes so you can go and find them directly. Now, Kat, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. So this was a tough one, because I was going to go down the route of something beautiful and historical to look at, and I very nearly plumped for that. But then I had to be honest with myself and the fact that I have zero skills So I looked up what books were available, and I think I'm going to have to purchase and take Wilderness Survival for Dummies. (laughs) 
Perfect. I think that's a really smart choice because if you're on a deserted island, you are going to want to live there. Yeah. So. Yeah, I want to know which things I can eat that won't kill me because I will definitely try and eat poison berries. <laughs> I, I think that's that's very smart. I like that selection, definitely. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? So I've got big plans for my channel in 2024. I want to get more experimental. I want to see in particular if I can film on location and possibly in collaboration. And I think it's going to generate some really cool content. And away from the channel, in heritage sites right now, the live interpretation is really getting back up on its feet since everything shut down in 2020. And I just can't wait to see how it's going to continue, how it's going to grow. And I'm looking forward to being involved in as many things in that relationship as I possibly can. I'm delighted to hear that that's coming back. It's a wonderful way to engage with history and to learn something new and exciting. And I cannot wait to see what you produce on your YouTube channel because it is already fascinating. So all of the new content coming there, I know will be great. Kat Marchant, thank you so much for here today and walking us through the history of Henry VIII and helping us understand the real history alongside of Shakespeare's play. This was a really fun conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you. If you would like to see some visuals and some artifacts that go along with our conversation today, including some of the portraits of Anne Boleyn and direct links to the resources Kat recommends you use to learn more about what Shakespeare understood when he was writing the play about Henry VIII, you can find all of these extra tidbits in the show notes for today's episode. Find all of these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 306. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP 306. If you'd like to go beyond the episode and really get your hands on the history that you learn about in our show, then check out our Shakespeare History Club on Patreon. Patrons get behind-the-scenes looks at the making of our show, insider extras from when I'm doing research. I share all of my extra tidbits there with our patrons. You also get access to over 150 additional episodes not available on public listening platforms. There's video versions of the podcast and a collection of educator resources, including hands-on activity kits that let you try out some of the games, recipes, and crafts straight from the life of William Shakespeare that you can do at home or in your classroom. There's all kinds of special extras if you would like to come with us and step into turn of the 17th century England the way Shakespeare would have lived it, then join us right now on patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is researched and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.